this message is very somber. It's very serious, and it's entitled The Suffering Servant, The Suffering Servant. Last week, I talked about fear, and one of the greatest fears that any of us have is being rejected. We hate being rejected, perhaps being rejected on our first date. Perhaps it was being rejected by being the last one picked um, in basketball. Maybe it's being rejected at a job. We hate being rejected because rejection Hurts. Yet our redemption was purchased through the rejection of the Son of God. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about how our Savior was rejected. And through his rejection, he suffered greatly for you and I. But his suffering ultimately is what brought us our redemption. That is what the message of Jesus Christ is about. If you have your Bible or your phone, I want to encourage you to turn to Mark chapter number 14. I'm going to be reading two passages this morning. The first one's out of Mark 14 and the second one's out of Luke 22. But Mark 14, starting verse number 32, says this. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. This is speaking of Jesus and his disciples. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he said to them, and he came to them and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them asleep for their eyes were very, very heavy and he did and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. I want to read the same account from Luke's gospel. He has an account as well of it. And here's what the gospel of Luke says in Luke 22. And speaking of Jesus, and he came out and went, and as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. And when he came to that place, he said, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And there appeared him from heaven an angel strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he arose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptations. This is one of the most well-known events in the life of Jesus. And when we start reading this event, we are literally hours away from Jesus' arrest and his betrayal, his trial, and his crucifixion. In the previous verses, Jesus has just had the Last Supper with his disciples, and he instituted the communion with him. And this is the new covenant in their blood. He then leads his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray before his betrayal. And this is one of the last acts of Jesus as a free man on earth. What is he going to do? 
And Jesus does what he's always done his entire life. The Bible says, as was his custom, he goes off by himself and he begins to have a real, a raw, and an emotional moment of prayer with the Father. As one of the last moments of Jesus's life on this earth, this prayer gives us an insight into the humanity of Jesus like never before and the cost of our redemption. The writers of the Gospels paint a very detailed picture of what's going on in this moment in Jesus's life, and we need to go deep into this imagery to get a grasp of what Jesus is dealing with. We have to get our minds right, right from the beginning, that Jesus is not saying a little prayer before he dies. It goes a lot deeper than that. You know, a lot of times we ask the question, how much does Jesus love us? How much does Jesus love you? How much does he love me? Well, this moment, perhaps any, more than any other moment in Jesus's life, we see the depths of love that he has for you and for me. This prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane is recorded in three of the Gospels. And when you put all these accounts together, you get a, a more perfect picture of what's happening in this moment. The Garden of Gethsemane was very familiar territory for the Son of God. He had spent a lot of time with the Father on numerous occasions in prayer. And I'm sure that Jesus remembered the wonderful times in the presence of the Father that he had in this garden. And I just imagine Jesus knowing that he was a few hours from the greatest trial he'll ever experience in eternity. He rushed to the garden to have one last conversation with the Father before his suffering begins. But the Bible says something very interesting happens in this moment. When Jesus goes to the garden, the Bible says suddenly he began to be sorrowful. Suddenly he began to be sorrowful. The gospel writer Mark uses a Greek word for began that means an intense emotional state because of something causing great surprise and perplexity. Think about that. Jesus is going to pray and suddenly, by surprise, sorrow and grief start to overtake him. The sorrow and grief is so bad and takes him by such a surprise that he tells his disciples that he's at the point of death. The anxiety and the stress is so high and it hit him so suddenly that Jesus in this moment thinks that he's literally going to have a heart attack. He feels like he's about to die. And that raises a very intriguing question for you and for me this morning. How could the Son of God be surprised? How could he be surprised? In this moment, a few hours from his death, how could he suddenly be surprised by the sorrow that he felt? Jesus had been speaking of his death for a while. He had been preparing his disciples for what is to come. All along, Jesus appeared to handle the reality of his sacrifice with grace and with strength and, dare I say, enthusiasm. Think about it. One time he's talking to his disciples about his sacrifice and Peter pulls him aside and says, Lord, you got to stop talking like this. You're not going to die. And what was Jesus's response to Peter? He said, get behind me, Satan. Jesus was enthusiastic about going to the cross. He had been facing his demise with strength, and he had the right perspective. Jesus said, no one's taking my life from me. No one's forcing me to do this. I'm doing this on my own accord. I have the power to lay down my life and to pick it up again. Jesus not only knew what was coming in the way of his suffering, Jesus himself had predestined it and ordained his suffering. And yet now... He is surprised with an overwhelming sorrow. The word for sorrow in the Greek means literally to beat your chest with an inward agony. 
I don't know about you, but I don't know if I've ever felt that kind of sorrow where I want to rip my chest open because it hurts so bad. There was a sorrow and there was a weight. And the surprising thing was it came upon Jesus suddenly. He wasn't expecting it. Jesus, who had ordained this event, was not expecting the sorrowful moment. Jesus, who could see into the heart of men, was not expecting this moment. Jesus, who created the world, was not expecting this sorrowful moment. So what is going on in Jesus's life? There is something that is even stranger about this event. Tim Keller points out that by the time the Gospels were written, by the time these accounts of Mark and Luke were written for Christians, there were countless Christians who had already faced their death by the hands of the Roman government. Christians were burned alive. They were crucified. They were beheaded. They were fed to lions. And often there are accounts of Christians facing their martyrdom with joyous delight. They would sing praises to God as they were dying, much like Paul and Silas sang praises to God while they were in prison. So how could Jesus have this sorrow that he never anticipated while a lot of his followers face death with peace? There seems to be this contrast all of a sudden, and I think this is very important for us to catch. This fact points us to the reality that Jesus is facing a different kind of death than any human being has ever faced before or, or will ever face in their lifetime. Though Through Jesus' prayer, we see what makes this death different, the source of this intense sorrow. And the source of this intense sorrow is the cup. The cup is the point of the prayer that Jesus is offering. Jesus is asking God to remove this cup from him. What's the significance of this cup? What, what's so special about this cup? The cup pointed to the wrath of God because of the sins of humanity. There's several references to the, to the, the cup of the wrath of God throughout Scripture. Ezekiel 23 is one of those that speak of the cup of the wrath of God that he pours out on humanity for their sins. The wrath consumes and leaves sinful humanity utterly desolate to the point that they beat their chest. A, a, sinner's in, a sinner in the hands of an angry God facing the wrath of God, facing the cup of the wrath is truly a dreadful thing. And the reason why Jesus did not die the way all the other early Christians died was because the cup that he had to drink from, that was the difference. Jesus wasn't facing just torture and death. He was facing the cup, the wrath of God. Because of our sins, Jesus was facing the wrath of God for all of humanity. You see, Scripture is very clear on this. All have sinned against God, and the punishment of that sin is the cup, is the wrath of God. The punishment of our sins is the wrath of God being poured upon us in a physical death and in a spiritual eternal death in hell. And that is the cup that Jesus was facing in this moment. The next day, Jesus was going to experience the full force of the wrath of God on the cross, paying for every one of our sins. The wrath was so tremendous on the cross that Jesus was going to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's some debate on this, but some scholars believe that while on the cross, Jesus experienced the full weight of the wrath of God and the wrath of hell for all of humanity, for all of time, condensed down into a period of three hours. It's something that you and I can't even begin to imagine. And in the Garden of Eden, excuse me, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus was going to go to that cross, he was getting a foretaste of this wrath. In the Garden, he was getting a preview of what was to come. What's so dreadful about the wrath of God? What's so, what's so scary? What's so sorrowful about the, the wrath of God? Why does God pour out his wrath upon sin? 
Those are valid questions. And the answer to that is this. Ultimately, God's wrath is divine absence. God's wrath is divine absence. In essence, the wrath of God is God completely removing himself from humanity. Hear me. Humanity has never experienced complete divine absence. Sin separates us from God. Sin separated humanity from God. But God still sustains us because even though we have rejected him, he has not completely abandoned us. Acts chapter number 17, verse number 28 tells us that God has sustained us and in him we have our being. When Paul gave us those words in Acts 17, he was speaking to non-believers when he said that. Scripture says that every good thing in life comes down from God above and that he sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike, according to James 1.17 and Matthew 5.45. In the Garden of Eden, the first people, Adam and Eve, they sinned. And God said, when you sin, you're going to die. But Adam and Eve did not die instantaneously when they sinned. Why is that? Because of God's grace. You see, the moment we sin, what we deserve is death. But God in his grace sustains every person who lives, both believer and non-believer. What humanity deserved was instantaneous death, but God sustained us. And why did he sustain us? For the sole purpose that we might experience salvation in our life. God in his grace is holding out, pouring out his wrath on every person who has ever lived with the hope that we will turn to him and salvation. And you have experienced God's grace if you realize it or not. And the reason why I know you've experienced God's grace is because you are watching me this morning on your TV or on your iPhone or on your computer. You and I have experienced God's grace. We have never experienced the wrath of divine absence. In the first garden, the Garden of Eden, the temptation that the devil had for Eve was that you can be like God. The problem is that you and I cannot be like God, nor can we live without God. Divine absence is the wrath of God, and that wrath is so horrific because it means that we are completely and wholly helpless. If you've ever been abandoned by someone, you know that it's almost like something is tearing away from you. Fear, anxiety, anger, helplessness washes over you when someone abandons you. Maternal abandonment is terrifying for a child, but how much more terrifying is heavenly abandonment from your heavenly father who created you? To be separated from God would be to be separated from anything that would bring comfort to your life. Our souls are built for love and presence. We've, we've realized that during this coronavirus where we're all isolated from one another. There's a longing in our heart, even for the most introverted among us, to be in the presence of other people. What would it be like to be completely isolated from God? That's something that you and I can't begin to imagine because we've never completely experienced. What would happen when God removed all of his love and all of his presence from our lives? That existence would be one word. And that one word is hell. That's what makes the physical, eternal place of hell so torturous. The Bible describes hell as a lake of fire. And that's not being metaphorical. That's being literal. The, the, the graphic description of hell is very literal countless times throughout Scripture. Hell is a place of, of uh, is a lake of fire. There's burning fire. But there's another reality to hell that a lot of us overlook. The Bible says that it's a place of utter darkness. You see, in hell, there's nothing to bring you joy. There's nothing to bring you hope. There's nothing to bring you peace from the pain. It's amazing what people can go through in painful situations when they know that there's hope and there's peace on the other side of it. 
A few years ago, there was a story of a man who was hiking and a boulder fell on his arm and he was trapped for several, several days. And then he had an epiphany that if he was to amputate his own arm, that he could be free. How painful was that moment? But when I watched an interview with him, he said that the sense of relief that overcame him and washed over him when he realized he could be set free helped him to carry on. You see, we as humanity can, can handle a lot of pain. We can endure a lot of pain when we know that there's hope on the other side of it. But in hell, the wrath of God is being poured on, on every man, every woman for their sins. And that place is described as a place of utter darkness. In hell, there is no hope of escape. There is no hope of freedom. There is no hope that something good is going to come out of it. There's nothing there except for torture and utter darkness. There's nothing. And heaven is described as a place of light and that there is no sun or moon because the presence of God gives light to everything. But in hell, it's described as a place of utter darkness. Why? Because God is not there. It's divine wrath. Tim Keller said of God's wrath, he said this, I quote, The judgment of God in the Bible is unbelievably fair. It is an utterly natural consequence. The essence of sin is this. I do not want to have God in my life. And the essence of God's judicial wrath is to give us what we ask for. There is truly nothing fairer than that. And there's nothing more terrible. That is the wrath of God. That is the cup that Jesus is facing in this moment in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is staring into this cup of the divine wrath to come. Jesus, as a man, would have had a robust relationship with the Father. Jesus had an open line of communication with the Father. We have stories and accounts where Jesus would spend all night in prayer with the Father. We have an account of the transfiguration where Jesus is changed in a moment and he's communion with the Father. God rips open heaven a couple times and says, this is my son whom I love and with him I'm well pleased. We have, we have all these accounts where Jesus communes with God as a man. But more than that, more importantly than that, John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus had been in relationship and communion with God for all of eternity. He's never known what it's like not to have open access to the Father. But now in the darkness of the Garden of Eden, Jesus is facing for the first time in eternity the taste of what it's going to be like to be separated from the Father. That line of communication is severed. It's very interesting to note that God does not answer Jesus' prayer. We have no account of God speaking to Jesus. An angel comes in this moment, but God doesn't speak to Jesus. It's utter silence. It's why Jesus cries out and he prays three times. Bill Lane said of this moment in Jesus' life, that dreadful sorrow and anxiety then, out of which the prayer for the passing cup brings, is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny or a shrinking prospect of physical suffering and death. It is rather the horror of one who lives wholly for the Father at the prospect of being alienated from God, which is entailed in the judgment upon sin, which Jesus assumes. Jesus comes to be with the Father before his betrayal, but hell rather than heaven is open before him, and he staggered. Facing the cup of the wrath in the dark night, Jesus is calling out to the Father. And in the book of Mark, he says that he says to God, Abba, Father, or put our day, Daddy, Daddy. In this moment, you get the feeling from the text that Jesus is scared and he's crying out to his daddy as a child would cry out to his father saying, save me. If you've ever, if you're a parent, you've ever heard your child truly scared or truly hurt crying out, Mama, Mama, or Daddy, Daddy. 
Your heart melts because you can hear the pain and the terror in their voice. You want nothing more in that moment to rush in and to rescue them. And in this moment, the Son of God, as a grown man, is crying out in sorrow that suddenly is overtaking him to his Father. And he's searching for comfort from his Father. He prays to see his Father. He's proclaiming, God, take away this cup. He prays three times. And what happens? No answer. In this moment, he needs his daddy. But daddy doesn't answer. Instead of daddy, there's pain, there's abyss, and there's absence. Instead of daddy, there's the wrath of the cup from God. What makes this moment so painful for Jesus is that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. When you lose someone that you love that's close to you, that's painful. And the closer the relationship, the more painful it is in this moment. Jesus and the Father had perfect love for one another. But in this moment, divine absence is taking place and it's perfectly painful. Luke tells us an angel is there to comfort and strengthen Jesus, but it wasn't enough. Even after the angel was there, his, his sweat was falling his blood to the ground. His sorrow is overcoming him. Why is the angel not enough? Because when you're separated with the Father, nothing brings peace except communion with the Father. So Jesus in this moment of sorrow is crying out to God, and there are two things that are happening, an absence of love and a presence of wrath both of which Jesus would have never experienced before. And in this moment of anguish, Jesus is facing beyond anything that we can compare. Why did Jesus need to experience this sorrow in the garden? Wasn't the pain and sorrow of the whipping post enough? Wasn't the pain of the cross enough? Wasn't the wrath on the cross enough? I believe God placed the cup before Jesus that night because Jesus needed to know what he was coming into. He needed to know what he was committing himself to. He needed to have a foretaste of what was coming. We have to understand that this is not divine child abuse, as some have said. God is not twisting Jesus' arm, if you will, trying to get him to take on the sins of the world. Jesus said, I lay down my life and I have the authority to take it up again. This is the divine plan of the Trinity. This is Jesus' divine plan that he is submitting himself to. He's not submitting himself to this plan out of guilt. He's submitting himself out of this moment to the redemption plan because he loves you and he loves me. And he needed to know what he was coming into. For example, you might go to the dentist and know that it's going to be painful. But if you had a foretaste of the pain, would you sit down in the chair? Jesus needed to know what was coming so that he could truly submit himself to the cross. Because up until this point, Jesus had never experienced separation with Father. And now he knew what was coming at this cross. And he had an opportunity, he had to have an opportunity to choose to follow through or to run away. In this moment of sorrow, Jesus could have slipped away. He could have slipped over the hill that was right there at the garden and no one would have ever found him. Just like Adam and Eve had the choice in the Garden of Eden to obey or to run away, Jesus had a choice to make. God had to set the cup before Jesus in the middle of his disciples sleeping and Jesus had to decide, they perish or I perish. They suffer or I suffer. What did Jesus owe us? Nothing. What did Jesus owe his disciples? Nothing. They were asleep on him. But Jesus made that decision. He could have left. He could have ran. But instead, he chose to stay and drink from the cup. That's what made that moment the greatest act of love from God towards humanity that has ever happened in history. Jonathan Edwards said of this moment that Jesus could have ran. He said this, I quote, That was not the language of his heart. Instead, he said, Thy will be done. His sorrow abound, but his love did much more abound. 
Christ's sorrow was overwhelmed with a deluge of grief, but this was not from, this was from a deluge of love to the sinner in his heart, significant and sufficient to overflow the world and to overwhelm the heart highest mountains of sin. Those great drops of blood that fell to the ground were a manifestation of an ocean of love in Christ's heart. Not only was this the greatest act of love, this is also the greatest act of obedience to God. In all of humanity, the promise of God is this. God says, obey me, walk in my ways, and I will bless you. But to one man, to his son, God says something different. He said, walk in my ways and obey me, and I will crush you. And Jesus obeys. Jesus is the first and the last human in history to ever hear those words from the Father. The Father is essentially saying to the Son, if you obey me, if you're faithful to me, I will forsake you. I will cast you off and I will send your soul to hell. And what does Jesus do? He obeys. I want to wrap this up with this. I start out this message with a question. How much does Jesus love you? And the answer is this. He loves you enough to become the suffering servant. For the first time, the father rejects the son. He says no. And out of that great rejection, out of that great unanswered prayer, came our deliverance. The precious blood of Jesus did not start flowing at the whipping post. It did not start flowing at the cross. It started flowing in this garden on the night that Jesus received a foretaste of the cup of the wrath of God. Jesus proclaimed three times, God, all things are possible for you. But he also prayed three times, not my will, but yours be done. Those most powerful words ever spoken. With the blood running down his brow, Jesus got up. He drank from the cup of God's divine wrath. And in love, Jesus was separated from God on that, on that cross so that you and I could be united. We are united with God. We have salvation. We have healing. And most importantly, we have hope. That night in the Garden of Eden, when Jesus was, excuse me, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was looking into the cup of God's divine wrath, he was overcome in sorrow. But you know what I think he saw when he looked in that cup? I think he saw me. I think he saw me in my sins. I think he saw me in my hopelessness. I think he saw me alone and abandoned. And he knew that if he avoided the cup of the wrath of God, that I was going to stay in that state. So he saw the wrath and he chose to drink from it. So I didn't have to. I think when Jesus looked at the cup, he saw you when you were at the doctor's office and you lost your baby. And he saw your broken heart and he knew that the only way for you to ever be whole again was for him to drink that wrath. I think when Jesus saw that cup, he saw you when your marriage was broken and you didn't know how to work it and you didn't know how to bring restoration. And he knew that he could avoid the cup, but he knew that your life would be broken. And so he chose to drink from that cup to bring restoration to your marriage. When Jesus looked at the cup of the wrath of God, I think he saw you when you were in the doctor's office and you were told you had cancer and that there was nothing that they could do. But Jesus knew when he drank from the cup that he could purchase your healing in your body. And he chose to do that instead of letting you suffer. When Jesus looked at the cup, I think he saw that there were going to be times when you had nothing. Your checkbook was empty. The coffers were empty and you were scared to death. And he knew that he needed to breathe and be your protection. I think when Jesus saw and looked at that cup of the wrath of God, he saw you when you felt alone and abandoned. And in that moment, he chose to be abandoned for a season so that you could be with God forever. And I think when Jesus stared in that cup, he saw the season we're in right now. 
with this coronavirus and he saw the fear that everyone was facing. He saw the disease that's plagued and affected so many. And he chose to drink from that cup to be the solution even in this moment. So because he drank from the wrath of God and was poured out upon sin on that cross, he made a way for you and I to be with God. In that garden, he began to bleed. And in that garden, he began to right the wrong of sin. What's so powerful about the blood of Jesus that's sufficient for you and for me. The blood of Jesus met the requirements of sin. When I was talking about the wrath of God earlier, Jesus' blood is enough. And all you have to do is to put your faith in him, to believe in him, to put your hope in him, to make him Lord and Savior of your life. And that blood washes away your sin. That blood brings you back to the Father. That blood brings you hope and peace no matter what season you're in. The best part of this entire story was that death could not hold Jesus down. He drank from the cup and he died on that cross and his soul was crushed in that moment. But God raised him up. The book of Hebrews tells us that when Jesus offered his blood on that cross, that he entered into a true and better temple in heaven. And when he did, he offered his sinless, perfect blood as a sin offering once and for all for the sins of the world. Jesus in that moment overcame death, it overcame hell, and it overcame the grave. And because of that death, he rose three days later in victory, and he has an inheritance. Jesus was not separated from the Father forever. He was separated from the Father for a very short season while he was on that cross. And as soon as he made that sacrifice, God raised him up and gave him a name above every name, that the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And the scripture says he pours out his inheritance and his blessing. He shares it with you and with me. Gethsemane was hell for Jesus. But if there was no Gethsemane for Jesus, there would have been no cross. And if there was no cross, then there'd be no empty tomb. And if there was no empty tomb, then there would be nothing but hell for you and for me. So I don't know what you're going through this morning, but I want to tell you this. Jesus is the answer. Maybe you're here today and you are not saved. You do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let me tell you what the Bible says. Simply confess him with your mouth and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead and you will be saved. I don't believe it's about saying the exact right words. I think it's about the posture and the slant of your heart. And when you come to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I need you. Be my Lord and my Savior. I'm turning away from my old sins and I'm living for you a new life. I believed you died on that cross for me and you rose again. And I believe you're Lord and Savior. The Bible says you will be saved. You can pray that prayer this morning right where you're at, right in your living room. You can surrender your life to Jesus Christ. There's others of you who have already done that. And you need God to be your provision and your source in this moment. He can be your provision. He can be your source. That's why we celebrate Easter because we have hope. Right now, the world does not have hope, but we have hope. Why? Because Jesus has already taken the cup. And if the cup is gone, then there's nothing that should bring fear and terror into our heart. We can have strength and we can have courage in this season because Jesus is our Savior. Thank you so much for joining with us this morning. We're going to close out this service by me praying for you today. I want to pray for two groups of people. Maybe you're here and you need to give your life to Jesus. I'm going to pray this morning. And I want you to pray to God, God, here's my life. Here's my life. But I also want to pray for us as a church and as believers that in this season, the sufficiency of Christ will be enough to carry us through. Let's pray. Lord, we just come before you right now. And Lord, I have no idea who's watching. I have no idea who's hearing the sound of my voice. But God, I do believe that there are people right now that need to experience and encounter your saving grace. Jesus, thank you so much for coming and taking the wrath. 
Thank you for drinking that cup. Thank you for staying and not running away. And God, if there's someone right now that needs to give their life to you, I pray, Lord, that they would begin to pray. Lord, in their own words, in their own language, Lord, I pray they would cry out to you. Lord, that they would surrender their heart to you. Lord, that they would repent and turn away from their old sins. And Lord, they would start living a new life for your glory, for your honor. Lord, deep down inside, Lord, I pray that you just implant faith in their heart. Lord, that they would believe in you as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, that they would experience right now the salvation that you have for all of us. And Lord, that they would know in this moment that you're with them. And Lord, that you're there and that you forgive them, that you, you clean them up, you wash them up. And Lord, you sent them in a new direction. Lord, I also pray for us as Christians right now. Lord, thank you so much. Lord, we give you praise that you took that cup from us. Lord, without that, we'd have no hope. We'd have no peace in our life. Lord, we would be helpless. And Lord, the only thing we'd have to look forward to is hell. But God, your, your salvation and your blood was significant and it was sufficient. Lord, it was significant because it was the, the only blood that could save us. And it was sufficient because it was enough. And Lord, I pray in this moment, Lord, that we would trust you. Lord, I pray that over the coming week, that our heart would be in tune with you. Lord, that worship would be the cry of our heart. Lord, right now when the world is falling apart, Lord, that our faith and our trust would be in you, that our, your word would be our sure foundation. Lord, that your spirit would lead us everywhere that we go. Lord, that we would honor you with our lips, with our thoughts, and with our hearts and our actions, God. Thank you for sustaining us. Thank you for being enough. Lord, we give you praise. Lord, as we're going into Easter, God, I pray that you give us divine opportunity to speak to someone, to share what you've done in our life with someone else, to point people to you, Lord. And I pray as we go into Easter that there'd be many hearts that'd be turned to you. Lord, thank you for this people. Thank you for their faithfulness. And thank you for this church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. God bless. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you on Easter Sunday.